Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. In today's episode, we're going to tackle the idea of who were the 12 apostles in the meridian of time. Using as a backdrop, the article Fishers of Fish, Fishers of Men, written by Jerome Murphy O'Connor. The assumption that often gets thrown around is that this quorum of the 12 apostles were made up of poor, uneducated men. But Mr. Murphy O'Connor shows that that may not be quite the case. And once we understand these apostles within the context of how they made a living, then we can go back and examine a scripture which may now mean a whole lot more than we first thought. The scripture we're going to start with is found in Mark chapter 1, 16 through 20. It's also in Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 22. And passing along by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The four fishermen, Simon, nicknamed Peter by Jesus, and Andrew, James, and John, became the nucleus of the group of disciples that Jesus gathered around him. Their accounts of Jesus' actions and of his sayings form the core of the gospel. Traditions about his public ministry, the historical reliability of those traditions in turn hinges on the character and credibility of these witnesses. What sort of men were these fishers of men? Their opponents, not surprisingly, took a dim view of them. According to Luke, the religious authorities in Jerusalem dismissed them as uneducated common men. Acts 4, verse 13. What is surprising is that this remains the dominant view among Christians even today. More importantly, 
It is a linchpin of the skepticism of those who attack the general liability of the gospel traditions. Such ignorant, laboring men, the argument goes, could not be expected to remember or report accurately. On the contrary, to increase their own importance, they were likely to invent and embroider at will. So little or no confidence can be placed in what they relate about Jesus' words and deeds. But is such a view justified? The New Testament tells us little directly about the two sets of Fisher brothers, but we can learn more about them by looking at the fishing industry and the status of fishermen in the ancient world. You may be surprised. One simple gauge of the importance of fish in the ancient world is the space given to the topic in the oldest encyclopedia we possess, the Dipnosophistike, the learned banquet, or more wittingly, the gastronomers, compiled around 200 AD by Athanasius of Nucratus in Egypt. In writing his encyclopedia, Athanasius drew on some 1,250 different authors and cited the titles of more than a 1,000 plays. In addition to numerous references to fish throughout the work, Book 7 is entirely devoted to fish, 125 pages in the Loeb Classical Library edition. The contrast with meat could not be more striking. This work has many references to meat, but the largest block of material is only two and a half pages long. These simple statistics betray an intense interest in fish, which confirms that salted, dried, and pickled fish was the stapled food of the Greeks. And it could be added of the rest of the Mediterranean countries, Bread and fish, with, a tradi- with the addition of olive oil and wine, formed in ancient times the most substantial part of the diet of the people. Rich and poor, writes one modern-day historian. Significantly, the quantity of fresh fish available did not meet the demand. This inevitably pushed up the price. The Greek biographer Plutarch reports Cato the censor's complaint that a fish sells for more at Rome than a cow, and they sell a cask of smoked fish for a price that a hundred sheep plus one ox in the lead wouldn't bring cut in pieces. According to Plutarch, the eminent Roman was not exaggerating. Our sources complained bitterly at how expensive fresh fish was. Like money lenders, fishmongers were considered murderous wealthy thieves. The Roman emperor Hadrian tried to deal with the problem by regulating the sale of fish. He ordained, either those who catch fish are are to sell them all themselves, or the first people who purchase the catch from them. The resale of the same purchases by those who are third buyers adds to the price. The use of inspectors to control the price of fish was proposed as early as the 4th century B.C. High prices often put fresh fish out of reach of the poor. In fact, there was a presumption that if a poor person bought fresh fish, he was a thief. The first poor man, who is also young, who is seen buying eels from Mesian, is seized and dragged to the prison, unquote. The poor could afford only dried and salted fish, which was the basic food of the lower classes in the cities, slaves, peasants, and soldiers in the field. Since fish was an essential element in the diet of the majority of the populations, every government had to give thought to its regular supply. If private entrepreneurs failed to meet the demands of the market, the government farmed out fishing contracts in much the same way as it farmed out tax-collecting contracts. 
Professional fishermen had to guarantee a stipulated supply. Anything over and above they could sell on their own. A document from Tebtinus in Egypt dated to 235 BC confirms that a capitalistic enterprises played a significant role in such a lucrative market and that the owners earned much more than those who did the actual work. The Gospels clearly convey the importance of fish in the diet of 1st century AD Palestinian Jews. Tellingly, the Gospels never mention meat. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked, What man of you, if his son ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask for a fish, will give him a serpent? The disciples who followed Jesus into the desert carried bread and fish. The references, of course, are to dried or salted fish, which was broiled to make it palatable. In John 21.9, fresh fish was fried for breakfast by the lake. The parable of sorting the catch in Matthew... The kingdom of heaven is like a net, which was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into vessels, but threw away the bad. This identifies the fishermen as Jewish, because they follow the law, distinguishing between clean fish, fish with scales and fins, and unclean fish. This was both good and bad for Jewish fishermen. On the one hand, they could not sell all their catch. But on the other hand, they had an advantage in selling to Jews in Jerusalem, even though they had to travel twice as far as the Gentiles, who controlled fishing on the Mediterranean coast. It was a two-day journey from the coast to the Holy City, and four days from the Sea of Galilee. These figures make it almost... These figures make it most improbable that fresh fish was ever available in Jerusalem. How could a scrupulous buyer of salted fish know exactly from what type the fish slices were taken? All looked the same, especially when processed. The Mishnah encouraged Jews to mistrust the offerings of Gentile fish sellers. All fish sold by Gentiles can be presumed unclean. All manner of brine can be presumed unclean. So I'm going to stop here for a second. Do you see what's going on? In this article, what he's saying essentially is that the Jewish fishermen had a monopoly on selling to the Jewish people. That the Jewish people were taught in their faith to not buy fish from the Gentiles because it could not be trusted which fish were clean and which were unclean. And so while the Jewish fishermen had to throw some of their fish back in or to cast out, they also had a group of customers that nobody else could touch and that the Jewish people were taught to only go to Jewish fishermen to ensure that they got fish that was clean as their religion dictated. So back to the article. From this, it was but a short step to protectionism. As a story about Paul's teacher illustrates, a Gentile once brought a fish to Rabban Gamil. He said, they are permitted, but I have no wish to accept them from him. In other words, Jewish buyers should seek out Jewish suppliers who are presumed to respect the law. The advantage to Jewish fishermen from Galilee is obvious but they still had to face competition from their brethren who worked the Jordan River. Against this background, let us return to the small group of fishermen who were Jesus' first followers. Simon Peter, Andrew, and another apostle, Philip, came from Bethsaida on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. For many years, the precise location of their hometown was disputed because the first century A.D. Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historian Pliny located east of the Jordan River in the lower Golan, while John puts it west of the Jordan in Galilee. To complicate the problem, three sites east of the Jordan, Et Tel, Et Araj, 
and Masudegier were long considered, and I think that sounded French, and I'm sorry for that. I can't pronounce these. I'm making a stab at it. And so hopefully anybody here who's a, uh, a historian or a scholar will uh, will certainly know what I'm speaking of. These three places were long considered candidates for Bethsaida. Archaeological probes, however, showed that the last two sites were occupied only in the Byzantine period. At Tell, the first place I mentioned, was on the contrary revealed an occupational revealed an occupational history beginning in the third millennium BC with substantial remains from the first century BC in the first century AD. In Jesus' time, the territory northeast of the Sea of Galilee was ruled by Herod Philip who had inherited the area from his father, Herod the Great. Philip proved to be a popular ruler with a reputation for efficient and fair administration of justice. Towards the end of his life, he moved a great number of settlers to Bethsaida, which he raised to the the rank of a city and renamed Julius. The expanded population meant an increased demand for fish, and the process... The prosperity of at least one Fisher family in Bethsaida is attested by a spacious 1,750 square foot house built around three sides of a courtyard. Inside, excavators found a variety of fishing implements, including net weights and a long crooked needle. Also unearthed were 156 shards of imported Roman fineware, further evidence of the wealth. A Galilean upbringing had a profound influence on Simon Peter, Andrew, and Philip. As Jews, they would have learned enough Hebrew to read the scriptures, but their mother tongue would have been Aramaic. This makes it all the more curious that all three have good Greek names. Simon is derived from the Hebrew name Shimon, but it is Greek, and he is only rarely called Simeon, a transliteration closer to the Hebrew original. The nickname Peter is also Greek, and Andrew and Philip have no Semitic counterparts whatsoever. The implication is that their families were subject to strong Greek influence. In John chapter 12, verse 20 through 22, it provides one indication that Simon, Peter, Andrew, and Philip also spoke Greek. In that passage, a group of Greeks ask Philip to introduce them to Jesus. They likely did so because they had heard Philip speaking Greek. As business people, fishermen needed to know Greek. In the first century, Greek was as much the international language as English is today. Greek was the language of trade and commerce in the whole of the eastern Mediterranean. Bethsaida was but one of three ancient harbors that decorated the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It is unlikely that all had the specialized facilities that were necessary to preserve fish so that it could be transported any distance. Given the size of the lake, it would have made economic sense to have a central fish factory to process the catch of the many small harbors. That such was in fact the case is strongly suggested by the name of one harbor, Tarchia. The fish factory is the translation of that word. The name comes from the Greek verb terachio, to preserve by artificial means. In practice, however, the cognates of the verb deal predominantly with fish. For example, terachis, a dealer in salt fish. Terachian, pickle factory. Terachitus, salted or pickled. Terachigus, salt fish hawker. Thus, as the name indicates, Terachia was the place where fish was salted. The process has not changed throughout history. Gutted fish are rubbed with coarse salt. According to R.J. Forbes, an expert in ancient technologies, alternate layers of salt and fish are covered by dry matting. After standing 
From three to five days, the pile is turned over to stand for a similar period. During this drying, the body fluids drain away, the salt solution penetrates the fish, and after this drying, they are firm and hard, though in some cases left to dry in the air somewhat longer. To Aramic speakers, Tarchi, Tarchia, was known as Magdala, a name that evokes a different preservation process. The Aramic name Magdala is known only from the adjective Magdalene, attached to the name of Mary, the disciple of Jesus who came from Magdala. Magdala is a Hellenized corruption of the Hebrew Migdal, meaning tower. In Europe, where wood provided inexpensive fuel, a tower might have been used to smoke fish. The ancient Near East, however, was wood poor. So the tower was probably used to hang fish to dry in the sun and wind. For the fishermen of Bethsaida, bringing fish to be processed at Tarchi created a serious problem. They were residents of the territory of Philip, but Tarchi was in the territory of Herod, Antipas, Philip's half-brother. The two territories were divided by the Jordan River. Not surprisingly, the first village on Antipas's side of the border, Capernaum, had a resident toll collector and a small garrison to enforce his rule. If tariffs were levied on goods coming across the border, then fishermen coming from outside Antipas's territory to have their fish processed at Terchi no doubt paid a premium for the privilege. This tax problem explains why Simon Peter and Andrew moved across the Jordan from Bethsaida to Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Both Matthew and Luke describe Jesus miraculously curing Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. We might assume that Simon Peter had moved in with his wife's family for some personal reason, but Mark identifies the house as the home of both Simon Peter and Andrew. Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. That's found in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. We have a surprisingly good picture of the scale of Simon Peter and Andrew's fishing operation. They worked in partnership, Luke 5, 7, with James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who had employees, Mark 1, verse 20. They were free to start and stop work whenever it suited them, as shown from John chapter 21, 1 through 3, and Luke chapter 5, verse 11. The impression that they were men of substance who controlled their own lives is confirmed by the quality of their house at Capernaum. Known as the house of Peter since the 4th century, it is larger than most other houses excavated in Capernaum. Now I'm going to stop here for a second. I listed in this episode several resources, and so if you go to mormondiscussion.podbean.com and check this episode out at his host site, you'll notice there's several resources, including this paper that I'm reading to you, as well as some internet links to sites that talk about and show pictures of Peter's house in Capernaum. And and so I hope that this article will become very real to you as you begin to understand the, the breadth of, of these houses that fishermen owned. And you're obviously hearing it already, but fishermen, it seems to appear that fishermen are a much more wealthy industry, especially those fishermen who own the operations, than, than other industries, and that this wasn't just a poor man's job, uh, and that Peter and Andrew and James and John may have indeed been much more wealthy than we give credit to. It says here, but that is not all. Although no evangelist was interested in providing his readers with a detailed picture of the families of Jesus' disciples or their business practices, 
we can read between the lines. Given the average size of families at the time, it seems very likely that more of the family must have involved, been involved in the fishing business on the Sea of Galilee than just Simon, Peter, and Andrew. And the family income would have been proportionally greater than that of two men working alone. Against this background of a relatively well-off family, it becomes possible to understand how Simon, Peter, and Andrew were financially able to drop their work and become first disciples of John the Baptist, and then disciples of Jesus. Let us return to the key question raised earlier. How reliable are the gospel accounts? Radical skepticism regarding their historical reliability began with form criticism, a a way of studying the Gospels that developed in the years immediately after the First World War. Form criticism insisted that the reliability of the Gospel tradition was marred by the creativity of the believing community. No longer were the stories about Jesus regarded as authenticated by a chain of tradition. Instead, the stories could not be attached to any specific individual and could not be verified. Reports were treated as rumors. In 1962, however, the German Catholic scholar Heinz Sherman pointed out that there was was also a pre-resurrection community of disciples who had known Jesus personally and who had preserved memories of what he had said and done. The post-resurrection community, according to Sherman, was simply the continuation of the group that Jesus had gathered around him. The dominant members of the pre-resurrection community became the leaders of the much larger post-resurrection community. These were the Galilean fishermen, and it is precisely at this point that what we have learned about them becomes significant. When we read carefully against the background of this ancient industry, the scattered references to Simon, Peter, and Andrew coalesce into a coherent picture. They came from a prosperous, assimilated Jewish middle-class family, speaking both Aramaic and Greek. They were brought up to serve in an administrative as well as practical role in an essential major industry. They knew how to plan and organize. As experienced businessmen, they were astute enough to move their home in order to take advantage of a tax break. Such shrewdness, one can be sure, also manifested itself in the way they handled competition from the many other fishermen in the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan River. They were anything but uneducated common men. Business and profit, however, did not completely satisfy them. They looked for, they looked for something more spiritual and were prepared to make sacrifices to attain it. Their background and training, however, ensured that they would carefully balance risk against gain. They were not gullible and nothing in their personalities even hints at a tendency towards self-deception. From what we know of their character, It is clear that Simon, Peter, and Andrew would have functioned as a conservative control in the creative ferment of the post-resurrection community. They had the authority of eyewitnesses, the sobriety to report accurately, accurately, and the intelligence to discern between developments that Jesus would approve of and those that he would reject. And that finishes off the end of the article. And, uh, and with that, I wanted to discuss a scripture that we find in three of the gospels. We're going to pick up this story in Mark. This is in Mark chapter 10. And I think this story will be familiar, uh, to every one of you. It says, there came one running and kneeled to him, speaking of this person running up to the Savior and kneeling to Christ, and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Then the Savior responds, he says, Thou knowest the commandments, 
Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these I have observed from my youth. And then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, that thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Now I want to stop here for a second. This story, again, is not just found in one of the Gospels. It's found in three of the four. I believe the other two it's found in. It is in Matthew and also in, I believe, Luke, if I'm not mistaken. And in this story, we have this rich man. And he's actually, it comes off as being a young a young man, maybe even a uh, a very young man, maybe in his 20s or so. But this this is a young man who comes to see the Savior, who desires to follow Christ, who desires to have spiritual answers. He's keeping all the commandments, and he's kept them since his youth. And so the Savior asks him to sell what he has and to come follow him. And, and this man can't do that. It's just too hard of a thing to ask. And so he goes straight away. And uh, but it says that the Savior loved him. And I and I I mean that. I think sometimes we look at this story and we want to put this negative connotation on this young man who was unwilling to give away his riches. But I don't, I don't get that. I, the Savior says he loved him. And he's keeping the commandments, so he's doing most of what he needs to do. He's doing it right. And so this man walks away. And so from here on out, the Savior's not talking to this young man. Now he's turning to his apostles, and he's talking to them. And it says, And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? And then we get the old adage, Christ says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then it says, And they were astonished out of measure. Now I'm going to stop here. Here's the issue. The reason I did this episode today is to paint this picture that the apostles were wealthy, that Peter and Andrew, that James and John are the head of a major fishing operation, and that they are they are in no way poor. And so by showing how rich they are, now you have to recognize that Christ, when talking about the rich not getting into heaven, is talking directly to his apostles who are rich. And this is why they are so astonished. It says, and the disciples were astonished at his words. And, and in verse 26, they were astonished out of measure. And then they said among themselves, they didn't say this to the Savior, they said it to themselves. They looked at each other and they said, who then can be saved? Do you see that? It pricked them right in their hearts. Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. I want to finish with this idea. In the gospel, we teach rules. We teach commandments. We draw lines in the sand. We give people things they have to do and things they shall not do. And with all of these warnings in the scriptures, for instance, if thou shalt lie, thou shalt be thrust to hell, right? And so we have all these very severe penalties for for all of these breaking of the commandments. And in reality, if we go by the scriptures alone, by breaking the commandments and by by sinning, none of us are going to get to heaven. 
And the Savior pointed out that this man's weakness, his weakness was wealth. But we all have a weakness, and we all have multiple weaknesses more than likely. But we at least all have one. And that one is going to keep us from getting into the kingdom of heaven if we do things on our own. With man, it is impossible. But in spite of the rich man's wealth, in spite of someone else's sin against the word of wisdom, in spite of someone else's sin to be dishonest, Whatever those sins are, each of us have some weakness. And if we will give that weakness over to the Savior, even if we still remain struggling with it the rest of our life, by yoking with Christ, as Christ tells Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Christ says unto him, he says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, with man it is impossible, but if we yoke with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, then can our weaknesses be made perfect, be made strong. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And may each of you realize that without the Savior, you can't get there. But yoked with Him, with God, all things are possible. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Say what?